Hello everyone and welcome back to a new series of One Foot in the Podcast with your host, that is I, Tom. Well here we go again. I couldn't envisage getting past one or two episodes of the first series of recordings since, uh, well I had no idea if I'd be bothered to keep it up for this long and plus whether I'd even have a, even a couple of listeners outside of myself and you know a couple of close friends. So wow, uh, thank you very much for those who've uh, bothered to download and listen and I've even got a couple of reviews I'd quite like to read those out actually start off on a positive front thank you to Edvard123 he says what a great podcast a true fan of the show and very informative it's very kind of you Edvard um of course he's entitled that I don't believe it and uh, another review here from Jimbo Jones uh, entitled for the love of god he's put really enjoying this thoughtful informative and intelligent podcast Host is knowledgeable and entertaining. Running commentary with periodic facts about actors and scenes. Well worth a listen. Well, that's melted my heart, that is. Um, thank you very much. You know, I will point out that sometimes I do get things wrong or uh, certain things I might have overlooked. I keep dwelling on the small matter of not realising that Victor Margaret did in fact have a child. And I just debate whether I really did know that or it just went over my head. I knew something sinister had happened, but... <clears throat> I th- just thought it was a fan theory, but it is mentioned this series, which um, I'll touch upon uh, later on. Well, a-, a later episode even. So yeah, Jimbo and Edvard, thank you so much for that. If you could all um, leave me at least a few more reviews, that would be really helpful. It help others discover this show. Um, I think I'm up against it compared to other podcasts because, well, I'm doing this alone, which I think does make a difference if you haven't got someone to bounce off. <laughs> So it'd be really good to have you, the listener, to bounce off with instead. Like I said, you can always email uh, onefootinthepodcast at gmail.com or you can send me a tweet at onefootinthepod. But yeah, if you'd like to send a review in, um, five stars is preferable, but any feedback, if it's constructive, is uh, always appreciated. Like I said, it just helps uh, the podcast get out into the wider community, as it were. The demographic of listener... I'm not going to say you're all going to be old grumpy gits. I'm not saying that at all. But if there's a new generation of sitcom fans out there who are looking to discover slightly older comedies, then this will be a good way for them to discover it, maybe. But anyway, thank you so much. I should also point out that the One Foot in the Podcast reached, to my surprise, 11th in the Apple Podcast chart for Great Britain TV reviews, which is amazing. And it's all thanks to you guys taking the time to download. So preparing for Series 2 took quite some time. I've spent, like I did for the start of Series 1, many hours trying to clip some of the great moments of this show. Obviously, as the show does produce more and more comedy gold, it does take increasingly longer to get all the uh, clips that are sort of play throughout the podcast. But it is worth it, I think. It does add something for you, the listener, rather than just hearing my, my voice for half an hour, 40 minutes of time. Yeah, well, I think we're in for a cracking series. It, the show really does start to kick off. We've always known that a series one of most comedies, with the exception of a couple out there like Faulty Towers in The Office. Most sitcoms start off on a certain level of, well, I should say start off on a, they don't really set the bar that high for themselves, but it's, I guess it gives them something to work towards because when I was watching the series two back, I thought, wow, this show's jumped uh, dramatically. And they aired it in the same year, actually. 
This episode one, so we'll be I'm gonna be talking about the episode in Luton Airport, No One Can Heave Scream. And that aired fourth uh, of October nineteen ninety. So very very quick turnaround from writing the series, um, filming it in front of a studio audience and all the external shots to airing it. That's quite remarkable really. It's not something that happens anymore. But what's different about series two on- onwards is well I think the first thing to point out for series two is they move house and it's something I've only just discovered now I'm supposed to be this true big fan but I've, I've read this on the internet so it might not be true but I can envisage it being accurate so what the internet tells me specifically IMDB is that the first storyline we're given is that the the Meldrews have moved away from 37 Wingate Drive due to their house being demolished, amongst other things, and they moved to 19 Riverbank. And the reason for that storyline was due to a royalty dispute with the real-life occupants of the Meldrews' original house. But I think it works perfectly well as a storyline. It's something that could only happen, well, not just to, to Victor and Margaret, but it does fit in nicely with their accident-prone lives, if you like. And I think it adds somewhat more of a positive dynamic because the house isn't so dated. Their personalities shift to a more sharp and comical side to themselves, whereas Series 1, they were very... It was quite a laid-back kind of vibe. Everything's meant to happen for a very good reason, and it clearly works because the location of that house, which is in uh, Christchurch of Dorset, there's just something about those external shots that work much better. If you notice that in Series 1, I don't think we'd see much of the front of the house, if at all, if memory serves me correct. And they used an awful lot of the, the external shots outside of a um, fictional 19 Riverbank. So yeah, it's quite quite an interesting read that. Whether that's true, I don't know. But I can imagine if it's anything to do with the BBC and royalties, that could very well be the case, why they had to uh, write in the storyline of their moving house. I reckon I should stop blithering away now, and let's crack on with the episode in Luton Airport... No one can hear you scream. We open up with Luton Airport, a very busy terminal with Jean and Margaret sat in an airport lounge. Margaret showing Jean some of the holiday snaps. One of the uh, photos is uh, apparently of um, some ruins that uh, that so also Jean thinks. That's the little cabby where we used to go for our breakfast. That was our last day in Athens, actually. Nice one of the ruins. I think that's the hotel. Uh, Margaret says no, that's off the hotel. If you remember in episode six of series one, uh, Jean Warboys was playing down Greek holidays and she was reading off a list of all the bad things that it's known for. Um, so that's just confirmed to her that it's not really the place to to fly out to. I think uh, certainly in the last 20 years, it's been one of the holiday destinations I've really enjoyed anyway. But um, no. Back then, clearly, had did it have a reputation for being not a bit of a dive for holidaymakers? I'm not too sure. But, yeah, Jean is looking absolutely glum and she's holding something back and Margaret's oblivious at this point. She hands uh, Jean um, a postcard that Victor had apparently um, or allegedly forgotten to post. Well, I think if, I was, if we know Victor Meldrew at this stage, he, like a lot of us, probably didn't have any faith in the postal system or the airmail system. And that everyone pretty much doesn't get a postcard sent on time. And it usually arrives well after you've got back. Jean rings out the postcard. There's not a lot that's 
uh, states on that. Arrived safe and sound, plane trip fine, apart from finding dead snake in the flight bag. <laughs> now the poor snake that Victor had accidentally packed with him at the end of episode six, tragically suffocated, evidently. Again, the ongoing thing with this show and dead animals. It's uh, continuing into series two. G notices a error on the address uh, of her house. Oh, it, it's uh, 39. Sorry? 39, Wingate. It says here 30. Oh, that's just Victor's nines. I'm forever telling him. First of all, she mentions she's number 39 Wingate instead of 30 Wingate. And I thought it was quite interesting that they, she, well, she'd lived two, either two doors or one door down from uh, Victor Margaret, as they are currently at this stage, as far as they're, they're aware, live at 37 Wingate Drive. Anyway, the handwriting looks like it says 30 Wingate Drive. That will become important later on. And Margaret just says that's how Victor does his nines. Um, I'm always telling him that they, they, you know, they don't look legible. Um, so, yeah, it's a good job they, that postcard was hand-delivered. Otherwise, that might not have got to Margaret. Or I'm sure a neighbour would have passed it on anyway. In the midst of the conversation, Jean interrupts Margaret and says, quite abruptly, I need to buy you a large brandy. We don't see the news, or we don't hear of the news that Jean needs to give Margaret, but Margaret is sat there looking considerably less perkier. And in comes Victor, who's got a face like a slapped ass as usual. And he's quite rightly annoyed. Their luggage has gone missing. Um, so they come back to the UK with without their suitcases. Uh, Victor's ranting that it's all to do with the Greek baggage handlers and also says he's had a terrible time and references the polluted streets and the fact there was a coach strike. I don't know why that was the matters other than, well, perhaps they couldn't actually get out and about for day trips, I suppose is what he means by that. And also mentions the incarcerations. Now he mentions the incarcerations because Margaret had said to Jean that some um, a man stopped Victor and asked how he was and Victor said, I'm fine apart from the crack in my bottom. Referencing hemorrhoids or something, I assume which became a bit of a misunderstanding because that person was an undercover drug enforcement agency officer and thought he literally meant he had something up his, you know, which could only happen to Victor, of course. So Victor's still, you know, enraged by that, along with the the luggage element. Margaret prepares Victor for the incoming bad news and for some reason gets Jean to tell him. And won't I won't won't get hysterical, just tell me what's happened. Your house has been demolished. And Victor's gone from looking bemused to dumbfounded, as you would do. And Jean just goes on to say... First of all, it caught fire. (laughs) Somehow, two days after you left, um, it was very badly gutted, but it was still standing. That was before the hurricane. <laughs> well, you see, by by then it it was getting very, very hazardous, with it collapsing on people in the street and so on. <laughs> First of all, it caught fire two days after they left, so it's it's been in a state for nearly the whole time they've been away. And she goes, "That was before the hurricane hit." And then, of course, then of course, because of the hurricane element. And the house look, being almost complete rubble, 
they had to demolish it because it was collapsing on people in the street, which is sounds quite horrendous. Margaret says to Victor, who's even more gobsmacked, I brought you a tenant's pills and a lager. So, little insight to Victor's favourite drink there. Uh, v- Victor pours the, the lager over his face. Or I should say pour. He, he chucks it in his own face and says, no, it hasn't helped, I'm afraid. So I wonder if that's the coping mechanism that's usual for Victor. We don't see it at any any end of the point during the show. But yeah, that scene ends and I, I never knew that Gene Warboys was their actual neighbour. So Victor and Margaret and Mrs Warboys are now back at 37 Wingate Drive and it's quite a sad um, scene. First of all, it's at night, so it's just that much more gloomy. It's quite a clever location shot because, first of all, we don't know if this is like a builder's, you know, a builder's yard or um, it's just a fluky find by the producers that they managed to find what looks like a, a mini demolition site of um, of a building of sort. Now, I could be, I need to be corrected on this. I'm not sure we ever had the view of 37 Wingate Drive at the front. Uh, not as much as we do when they move to 19 Riverbank. So anyway, Margaret asked Jean what happened. What do they think happened? Well, there's a theory about some children sticking a firework through the letterbox as a trick or treat. But of course, they can't prove anything. It was Mrs. Althorpe across the road who first smelt something burning. Did she do anything? Well, yes. She turned down the gas under her collar. <laughs> Eventually, she did try to ring the fire brigade, but what with the arthritis in her fingers and everything, she got the wrong number and got through to a singing telegram agency. <laughs> Mind you, to give them their due, they were around here very quickly. <laughs> the three men in gorilla costumes. <laughs> Well, that was the answer to all our prayers then. What do they do? Swing backwards and forwards between the lampposts with buckets of water? It's classic of Renwick to put something like that in there. I thought it was very funny that this poor old lady just tried to do the right thing by calling the fire brigade and gets through to a singing telegram agency, which is a great piece of writing, again, by David Renwick, because there's a situation here where a story's been told about a tragedy. Luckily, with no one you know being killed but nevertheless someone's home's been burnt down but in the in the very short piece of storytelling we have in that scene a quite simple bit of dialogue about a dear old lady with with some arthritis in her hands not able to dial the right number and consequently funny outcome like i said it's a nighttime shot so i think it's made sense them to do that just to disguise the fact that understandably couldn't find a demolished house in the middle of a residential street. Jean steps aside to get some coats for Victor and Margaret as it's quite cold. Victor proceeds to walk in through to the uh, now demolished house and becomes irate. He finds a newspaper. Not only the fact that someone's bothered to post a newspaper but it's that very night newspaper. I don't believe it. I don't. You see this? Look at this. The house has been raised to the ground and they're still delivering the bloody newspapers. Three newspapers, they stick through the door. Look at this. This is tonight's edition. This has been delivered tonight. And starts reading a Fortune in the Stars section, uh, sarcastically mocking up a version of his current situation and clarifying all the crap he's been through. 
and signs off with saying, I'll never call that Russell Grant a vacationist lump of whale blubber ever again. Of course, Russell Grant known for fortune telling. Seems to get on the wrong side of a lot of um, celebrities as Russell Grant. Uh, can't think why. In the midst of uh, Victor's rant, an irate neighbour from across the road. Sure, they've had they have history, because the irate neighbour is shouting across the streets. What the hell's it got to do with you? I'm trying to get some bloody sleep, and I'm not getting it with you down there. Yakking nudging to the dozen about Brexit examinations and spicy sauces. Do you know what the time is? Tie you stuck your head down a waste disposal system. You're weak in the whole street. I have just returned home to find my entire house burned to the ground. Ah, don't I know it? I didn't get any bloody sleep that night either. unsympathetic and and rubbing salt in the wound that you know even though their home has been burnt down this guy just does not care and then next door to the irate guy pipes up and also lays into poor old victor and victor's giving it back you know he gives as good as he he gets to be fair to him once the little squabble is over vic goes back inside and uh, goes up the uh the remains of the staircase and margaret says hey, what are you doing and he goes i'm just gonna go to bed and hope I can wake up and find out this is all a hideous dream. And Margaret then just breaks down and crying. And this is where Victor, he has got a heart and he can, you know, snap out of his uh, his moaning and his despair and think of Margaret in this moment. Because she's kept a level head up to this point. So he comforts her and that ends the scene. Dawn of a new era now. First thing we see is uh, a black screen with the writing six months and several arguments with the insurance company later. You can imagine the uh, manic state of uh, anger that Victor would have been in going through the whole method of claiming on house insurance. Victor and Margaret now at Riverbank, number 19 Riverbank, and this is where they'll remain for the next uh, five series and multiple specials. She point out that they lived at Wingate for 25, at least 25 years, which is referenced later on in this. And I'll go through that then. But yeah, this is their, essentially their retirement home now. And we see a beautiful aerial shot of the place it was filmed in, which is Christchurch in Dorset. I think Tresillian Way in Walkford. Uh, Christchurch, Dorset. I don't think we see that aerial view um, again, but one, th one thing for sure is we will see a lot more of the front of the house and uh, what they do, like they did at the ha house at Wingate, is they'll keep that uh, staircase shot, which is quite an iconic shot for the Meldrews. So we're in the, the living room and Victor Margaret, uh, it's been six months, so first of all, where have they been living? Uh, I would have thought at Mrs. Warboy's house, it seems quite... I speculate that she had quite a grand old house because any shot of her home 
had quite large living living room areas. Um, that's what I'm basing that on. But I've also discovered that they, she lived next door, and they had a standard sort of two, three bed uh, accommodation. So it couldn't have been that big. Anyway, enough to keep Victor and Margaret at home, I, I'm sure. So Victor and Margaret are unpacking. There's lots of packaging. There's the furniture with still um, a little dated sofa there, but the house looks a lot more of its time. No sort of old decor wallpaper. Victor's moaning that is so much packaging now, and he picks up this quite large box and says, what was in here? The Taj Mahal. And Margaret, uh, showing her mindset, saying, I need to send that back when it goes wrong, referring to a food mixer, which I thought was quite good. Again, I love this little nod from Renwick. Our you know, day-to-day life for most of us, where we have that negative mindset of things are bound to go wrong. The doorbell goes, and we hear uh, a neighbour introduce himself, and it's, of course, Mr Sweeney. Ah, it is you. I thought it was. Mr Mildrew, isn't it? Fancy you turning up as a next-door neighbour. How are you settling in? All right. I'm sorry? Nick Sweeney. Outward bound for the elderly. Last year, I called round and you told me to piss off. <laughs> <laughs> He's back. Mr. Sweeney is a really nice character, um, played by Owen Brenham, and you can follow him on Twitter. So, yeah, Mr. Sweeney, he is quite pleased that the the house is occupied, as it's been empty for a while. Like, he's quite cryptic about what happened to this Mr. Gittings. Um, he said, after what happened in that bathroom with poor Mr. Gittings, and he touched talk of razor blades, and it's starting to freak Victor out. But He's not saying enough to give the full story, which just, just leaves Victor hanging. Margaret doesn't seem to mind. Um, amongst this, he, by he, Mr. Sweeney asks that they don't use the lavatory after midnight or after 12.30 because it starts to sound like an air raid siren. And how long would you like me to hold my bladder till in the morning? <laughs> Eight o'clock be all right. You'll keep a couple of buckets on the bedside table. <laughs> You are kind, Mr. Meldrew. Not sure that's the thing to say to your new, your new neighbours. Quite a demand um, to put on your, your new neighbours when they can pull their flush, but it's not something that really gets brought brought up again, so one can only assume the plumbing gets fixed. But the whole spiel by Mr. Sweeney is that something hideous happened in that bathroom, and he's mentioned, like I said, razor blades, so whether there's been a hideous murder, I don't know. You'd think that that would be... If you're buying a house, I think these things have to be declared, don't they? So... Clearly, nothing of the sort has happened. I think it's nothing more than a bit of misdirection from Mr. Sweeney, but funny all the same. When Mr. Sweeney leaves, Victor <laughs> reads a letter. It's addressed to Mr. Beldrew, and it states they've returned um, some items found uh, from the lost luggage, and it's a sock, a single sock, as we return to Victor. Margaret does not seem bothered at all, but she just says, oh, I recognise that sock, it's, it's the one that I've darned. So she is she is proper laid back still. Victor is sunbathing in the garden now, and what we're about to see is Mr Sweeney, first of many in, intrusions. What's the idea of this? Well, it makes it a bit easier, doesn't it? Yeah, save all that trooping round the front all the time. It used to help me keep an eye on old Mr Gittings, make sure he was all right. Up to this rather horrific death, anyway. Oh, Mother asked me to give you some cuttings from her wandering Jew. Now, they like a bright position, but try and avoid the direct sunlight. Anyway, uh, I better dash. I expect you'll find somewhere for them, won't you? Oh, what's about the bathroom? It's a thought, isn't it? Yes, thank you. Bathroom? What about the bathroom? Why do you keep going on about the bathroom? Um, Victor and Margaret seem to let it slide, but Mr Sweeney's created a 
opening in the middle of the, the shared fence so he can walk in and out as he pleases which is quite a nice little setup but only if you're that familiar with your neighbour Victor's absolutely perplexed by this Mr Sweeney's come to give a, a plant the plant is a wandering Jew and it's courtesy of his mother his mystery mother that we never see she lives with Mr Sweeney and she's housebound he calls up to the the window and says he says thank you very much and Victor's just look, trying to see can't see anyone at the window and he just he just again from we're looking at it from victor's point of view and she just doesn't seem to exist at this at this stage we we never see her but it's like that nice little ongoing thing of um elderly mother with her mad but you know kind son who's a little bit bonkers and we we think he's he's making her up as far as far as as far as we're concerned she doesn't exist it's a funny little, funny little uh, thing throughout the series. Fast forward to the evening time. Victor and Margaret in bed. Victor's a little bit worried about using the bathroom, so he says he'll give that a miss after what Mr. Sweeney's uh, told him about the previous occupant. Uh, Margaret's just downplaying it and saying he's just a nice man. Just you know, don't don't be too hard on him. Uh, she receives a phone call mid-sentence and it's Mr. Sweeney uh, asking if she'd uh, pulled the flush, much to Victor's dismay. And you think, you know, that was that would be quite quite alarming if you moved into a house and had a neighbour that interested in what you're you know, what you're doing, you know, what your your personal business anyway, but he does play a nice character so they can rest easy, I think, long term. He's one of the very few people who Shows any kind of respect of it to Margaret, despite him being a bit of a nosy, so and so with how they're, you know, with their plumbing system. He is consistent throughout. He never snap, snaps at uh, Victor, um, never holds a grudge, never sees anything that seems weird from his point of view. And it's quite a nice thing to have in Victor's life. It's just Victor just finds him a little unbearable to be around. Assumably the following day, or evening even, Victor and Margaret have set their front living room up, their front living room up which isn't quite ready. Um, it's not quite furnished. They've got the sofa and a table and chairs. They're about to hold a housewarming party. They're, they're wondering where all their guests are. Victor's bemused at the fact that they've brought uh, copious amounts of pilchard uh, tins. It's not even if either of us likes pilchards. <laughs> And Margaret's just saying, you know, I've, I wrote on the uh, invite, 7.30, where are they? The doorbell goes, they both spring up, Margaret answers the door, she comes back into the living room and says, where's that Christian aid uh, envelope? So a false alarm for uh, Victor and Margaret, thinking their friends have turned up. During that time, Margaret says, as Margaret comes back from giving the Christian aid envelope to the charity work at the door, she says that a cousin Roger is parked outside, well, possibly parked outside, a house opposite from the, where they live. Another cousin of Victor's, I think he probably mentioned in the series one. And she just says, has he got a such and such car? And Victor says, well, yeah, but he'll be buried in that car. He's had it so long and he'll never get rid of it. So Victor goes out to investigate and he goes into a house uh, which seemingly is jumping. There's 15 or 16 guests dancing to some uh, blues, jazz. And it's Victor's friends that <laughs> they've gone to the wrong house. And he's greeted by Mr. Prout, who we see in the episode Valley of Fear in episode one. And we also see Jean Warboys. And she's slagging off their old style. She's looking at the 
the halves that they think is Victor Margaret saying, I like what you've done with the curtains because your usual taste isn't so... Well, your, your old taste, a bit gloomy. So I thought that was quite a funny, unintentional dig from Mrs. Warboy to get herself, dropping herself in it as ever. And Victor said, this isn't my house. This is, um, I don't know whose house this is. And he spots a gentleman and he's called Mr. Jewett. But is this your house? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is my party. These are my guests. Come for my housewarming party. They all brought their drink trunk here and little presents for me. I thought they were from the social services. Social services? <laughs> Played by Michael Bilton, Doctor Who, Zekars, uh, to the Manor Born. Yeah, thinking that all these people just come round to have a party in his in his honour. Victor turns off the the party music, guys, everyone to his house. I was enjoying that. <laughs> Before he guides about the house, they, he's uh, debating with the guests on, on the what he put on the invitation. And this comes down to his handwriting that Jean had mentioned in the first scene, where the postcard was nearly sent to the wrong address. They thought it was number 10 Riverbank. It is, in fact, number 19 Riverbank. So, again, Victor's nines and noughts um, causing some confusion. So anyway, Victor, like I said, guides them to uh, his house and he's confronted, first of all, by Mr. Sweeney. Hello, Mr. Melger. What are you doing? Well, I was just seeing if I could fix the noise in the... Oh, no, 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 not tonight. We're trying to have a party. And, it, and Victor, at this point, is just about losing his temper with him, saying, what are you doing here? He says, I'm having a party. Let's sort out the plumbing issue in the morning. And he sends poor old Mr. Sweeney out the door. He's, he's chucked Mr. Sweeney out of his own house... Because Victor's confused where he is and thinks he is in his new house. Margaret is on the staircase, utterly mortified of what he's just done. Victor! Oh, do you know what was good? They were only having our housewarming party down in number 10. Can you believe that? Victor, what have you just done? Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't in the mood for him tonight, not on top of everything else. This is his house. <laughs> You have just thrown Mr. Sweeney out of his own house, Victor. I said earlier if Mr. Sweeney really did have a mum living in his house, but Margaret confirmed that she was at his house just to help his mum, who had a fall out of her bed. So that puts the end to that conspiracy early, early doors. And yet again, he's got to tell all the partygoers to leave the house they're in. Look, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to come with me again. I'm sorry about this. You're not serious. Whatever for? Well, this isn't my house. What? (laughs) This isn't my house either, I'm afraid. I thought it was, but it isn't. (laughs) So, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to come with me. I'm sorry, I know, I know, I know, but it's not my fault. They all look the same, you see. So, if you just have to come with me, please. And eventually they go back to their next door and we don't see the remains of the party. We just see Victor and Margaret just seeing off the last of the guests and they've had a great night and it's all's well has ended well. Margaret is uh, actually on her own at this point. Victor is not to, nowhere to be seen and she so look around for him. And Victor is back at Wingate, uh, old property. And... Margaret's got herself a taxi there, and she is stood with Victor whilst he, he's you know, evidently quite sad. He's had to move away from a house that 
transpired that has lived there for at least 25 years, which is quite a comical moment, really, but how we find that out. He's pointing to an apple tree. 25 years it took to grow that apple tree. I planted it in the spring of 1965, feeding it, spraying it, mulching the soil, watering it through the droughts, giving it an annual dressing of potash and nitrogen every January. Not one sodding apple. <laughs> to a morbid moment turning into a comical moment, which very few comedy writers are able to do, which is really good. And Margaret ends that uh, quite a touching scene with quite a nice poetic line of, let's go and plant another one. Uh, just show Margaret's more positive outlook on life. And the episode ends there. And that's quite a very strong opening episode, I think. And we've we've learnt that, well, I learnt that Margaret uh, and Victor are neighbours to Jean all along. Uh, we they've moved house and they've gone out in style, really. I say in style, they've they've moved house for a very good reason. They've not it's not just been some boring um, plot point that they've just decided to move because they're fed up with the area. They've literally been um, forced to find somewhere to stay because they were in the moment homeless. And I think it's done the show the world of good. There's something about the the set design of this living room kitchen that we see day in, day out. Uh, the dynamic feels different. The show starts to come into its own. Richard Wilson is even better as uh, Victor Meldrew. Just everything about this show grows from here on out. There's some really, really good, um, strong episodes coming up. And yeah. One thing to note is, and I know that in the One Foot in the Grave manual, Renwick was absolutely, and I mentioned this last series, it was absolutely petrified on how to explain Margaret's haircut. So this scene one, she's got the same hairstyle from the whole of series one. But as soon as, uh, as, soon as they're back in their new house, she's had a different hairstyle, which I don't think is a big issue at all. I had to go back and watch the moment they look at their the remains of the house and she's still got the same hairstyle so if she'd had a if her haircut was different at that moment that'd been that'd been different because from the airport to to go into their demolished house she'd have had to for some bizarre reason get a uh, get a haircut i thought she'd had a cut on holiday before i did a rewatch uh, i think i mentioned that last last episode but it's not not a big deal i don't think People change their hairstyles. It's, it's, it's no biggie. Highlight of the episode is Victor twice um, hosting, unintentionally the first time, but hosting the party at the wrong address. That is great writing by David Renwick. I thought Jean Warboys' character is even stronger in this episode. She's responsible for delivering the news to Victor. She's recounting what happened with the... Uh, well, speculating what happened for the house to have been burnt down and eventually demolished. And when she's partying at the house, she's saying to Victor what how much she likes the the new decoration and the the new taste in, in curtains and whatnot because the old ones are so terrible. As far as housewarming parties goes, do people dance as wildly as that? If you watch this episode back, it's a group of fifteen and sixty something year olds wildly dancing in a front living room, whereas as far as I as far as I know, housewarming parties tend to be people standing around 
with a drink in one hand nattering to the person to the to the left or right but um it's quite atmospheric and maybe that's how housewarming parties are celebrated it's new to me um can't say i've been to many myself yeah i thought it was quite funny how renwick envisaged what a house party would look like but it worked i think it had to it had to be done that way so when victor twice stops the party it it changes the atmosphere somewhat rather than just a room full of people not talking it wouldn't have been had the same effect so yeah a strong opening episode i really enjoyed that Looking forward to recording the next episode, titled We Have Put Her in the Living Tomb. Time to move on to the infamous Mel Drew Moan Corner. Oh, I do not believe. Will you look at this, bastards? Can you believe the nerve of this? A skin their ruddy height for them. Well, my moan is going to be people who on their social medias, nominate and challenge people to carry out seemingly pointless tasks, posting photos of their um, their, their partners when they first met, um, haircuts or bloody cooking. <clears throat> and it's nothing to do with... The moan is nothing to do with people paying money to a good cause, although it would be nice if for once people, alongside donating to the NHS, donate to much smaller charities rather than the usual huge ones where CEOs seem to get a, a large cut of the profits. But yeah, that's my very quick moan, I think. Is, are people being that sincere when they post it? Do they just want people to go, oh, well, look at you? I think it'd be much nicer if people just say, I'm, I'm doing something for charity. If you'd like to sponsor me, that's nice. I, I like that. I've done that myself. But the whole nature of being challenged and nominated is just tedious. And it's hard to get away from because I see it all the time. Kudos to people who, who do give up their time to raise money. It's nothing to do with that. I just think people aren't sincere on social media. I think it's um, a little bit transparent. And that is that is what I got to moan about this week. Thank you very much for listening. As ever... You can contact me, onefootinthepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at onefootinthepod. Thank you to those who've reviewed. Uh, please uh, tell any friends or family who are partial to a podcast who enjoyed One Foot in the Grave back in its day. They, they might not watch it for years. Maybe they want to um, be reminded of episode by episode of what happened in the day in the life of Victor. Anyway, till next time, uh, take care of yourselves and speak to you next week. Cheers. Oh, I'm in the grave.